0: Tonight we have with us two writers who have steeped themselves in the literature and history to come up with works of fiction. And I think it's really interesting because I feel like I have two pieces of the puzzle that fit right next to one another, sitting on one another side of me here. Um, So I'd like to, uh, we'll start with Guy because he uh, taught... Talk about marinating yourself in the, the Tang Dynasty to to create something that's not the Tang Dynasty. How, how much time did you spend reading this? What drew you to the Tang Dynasty?
1: You know, you're you're, you're throwing your verbs out. I'm steeped. I'm marinated. I'm waiting for you to say I'm pickled. <laughs> 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 and then I get sautéed and flambeed. And <laughs> The, I've been living with this book for about seven years. Uh, Under Heaven is actually the book that I thought I was going to write when my wife and I took our sons over to the south of France in 2004-05. Uh, I had been reading about the Silk Road and had decided that I was going to go there next. Uh, and I took a suitcase, of very expensive uh, excess baggage with me on a flight over there and got abducted, hijacked, kidnapped, sautéed and flambéed by (laughs) the south of France when we got there. We lived there in the past, but it had been over a decade, and sights, sounds, smell, taste took me over, and I ended up doing a book set in that part of the world, which was Isabel. But the interest in the east, in the Silk Road, And in what lay at the eastern end of it, never went away. So from 2003 on, I'd been reading and collecting articles and corresponding with uh, academics, scholars who've spent their lives working. And I do this all the time. I'm always in, in contact with the people who make their living and spend their intellectual lives working in a period that I'm going to try to draw from for my books and uh, so if you ask me how long I was simmering uh, it was about seven years on this one
0: Zachary your book is based (coughs) uh, on the Odyssey and it's where a guy takes a historical period and creates a world of the fantastic that seems pretty much like our world once you're immersed in this book you won't know that you're not reading about something that has really happened you also take the Odyssey and write the parts that we didn't get (laughs) from from Homer. So talk about uh, immersing yourself in a literary work as if if it's reality in a way.
2: Um, As far as immersion goes, I actually did very little research. So I've been reading about the classics as long as I've been a reasoning being, I guess, but I perversely, in retrospect, didn't reread the Odyssey to write the book, in fact, it's been many years since I've read it. Actually, I just picked it up last week, uh, since it seemed like time for a a victory (laughs) laugh of sorts. It's a good book, I recommend it. Um. You know, the
1: Cohen brothers said that when they made O Brother, Where Art Thou, after they made it, which is supposed to be a riff on the Odyssey, Mm -hmm. they admitted subsequently that neither of them had ever read it. Ever? Wow.
2: (laughs) Um... So I had read it, but uh, a long time ago, which I thought was appropriate insofar as I wanted to work with the memory trace of it, the things that were significant enough to stick um, and not try to, I don't know, produce a plausible imitation uh, or something like that.
0: Well, um, one of the things I think that's interesting about both your work is that you're both dealing with uh, work that's translated and you're translating um, in a sense for us the um, translations. So it's a second generation kind of, uh, of artifice. Could you guys uh, talk about uh, creating an artifice based upon um,
1: artifice? Guy. That's, a, that's actually a really interesting comment. Uh, Robert Frost has famously said that poetry is what's lost in the translation. And uh, that'll be true of all English versions of the Odyssey from if you're doing the translation of the original Odyssey. That was true for me of all of the Tong Dynasty poets that I was reading. Uh, poetry plays a big part in, in the novel because it played a very, very big part in the culture that I was trying to capture. So translation was on my mind throughout. I don't read Chinese so my access to the source material is always going to be mediated by someone else and uh, my solution which is uh, ad hoc was to read as many different versions of something that I was trying to capture the flavor of, to read three, four, five different translations in order to try to get as close as I could in my working of a particular poem. For the culture as a whole, one of the reasons, one of many reasons that I work with history through the prism of fantasy is exactly, I think, what you're getting at here, which is that we can never exactly or even really closely capture the worldview, the personality, the character, the relationships of real people in the past. We are translating. And for me, that slight shift towards the fantastic from the actual, it's a shared nod between the reader and the writer that that's what we're doing. We're not going to be sharing a book that presumes to say exactly what a time and place was like. It's a translation of that time and place.
2: Um. So, I don't read ancient Greek. Uh, <coughs> and so the verbal music of Homer is lost to me. Um, I've, I've heard a few readings of it and it's very beautiful, but I was specifically focused on um, the sort of poetics of it that came through translation. Uh, that that was the essence of the Odyssey for me and what I was kind of trying to transubstantiate in the book. Um, (coughs) And there was an earlier version of the book, the first edition, that uh, had more to say about translation. Um, There was a frame story surrounding the text uh, describing how the lost books had been this sort of apocrypha surrounding the Odyssey for thousands of years, uh, but it was encrypted. And only with modern computation and algorithmics had the code been broken. But even then, it wasn't entirely clear whether there was actually literature there, if it was just noise. And uh, the nominal translators were, in fact, imposing uh, an interpretation that was a product of their imaginations rather than reality.
0: Uh, I love that. And one of the things I, I love about your book is you know, the brief setup when we read this, I have to admit, you know, I read this little, there's a little preface here and it talks about uh, these fragments and shards and rubbish mounds and and 44 concise variations on Odysseus's story, Um, and and I'm thinking, well, no, wait, is that real? Are there really those things there? And so uh, I think that also you guys share this love of kind of keeping the readers in suspense with how much you know, we're supposed to remember the Odyssey. I think everybody kind of knows the basics of the Odyssey, but when we read your book, we're th- I'm trying to remember it now. Is that, it? what, 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 what? So I think you kind of play with the, the lacuna and in our, in our understanding of, of, the, of the Odyssey in a way that's fun, and you fill in things for us that we may or may not, you know, we're always asking ourselves, how much of this is, is there? So uh,
2: much of the erudition in the book is false. Uh, I <laughs> arguably the majority. And one of my favorite things was that uh, one of the bits of erudition that I had intended and believed to be false turned out to be true. Really? Which one? Um, so there's a footnote about how um, there was once a species of dwarf mastodons in um, the Greek islands. Uh, they went extinct soon after people got there, but it's their fossils that probably led to the myths about the Cyclopes. Uh, if you've ever seen an elephant's skull, there's a sort of big gap in the middle, and it suggests a cyclops with huge tusks. Um, I made that up out of whole cloth, but it turns out to be true, except that where I had mastodons, it was mammoths, So maybe vice versa, I forget.
0: Well, oh, one of the things I think both of you guys have these kind of— these books have a kind of a, a scholarly feel to them. Um, in that uh, a guy, you we hear poetry— we, you know, have the feel that we're getting this history. And, and, Zach, in your book, you've got all these great footnotes. I love fiction with footnotes. It's just so much fun. Uh, talk about <laughs> It's such a, they're so goofy. And, and that, you know, you're, it's you talking to us maybe or somebody talking to us, and we're not sure who. Sometimes it, maybe it seems like it's Homer. or So uh, I'd like you each to talk about, you know, uh, having fun with scholarship in your books and kind of making that a, a part of your plot.
1: Well, first of all, of course, you are flirting with the kiss of death because scholarly, with respect to a work of fiction, where your ultimate goal is to keep people up until three in the morning, turning pages to find out what happens next, is a worrisome concept. Um, Flippancy aside, uh, my main purpose as a writer when I take off the researcher's hat and put on the writer's hat is to make the scholarship and the research invisible as unobtrusive as I possibly can because that's my job, not the reader's job my job is to have done as much as I can to process and integrate and think about implications of a given culture so that I can write about it as naturally as possible. And the reader is in no way slowed down by or impeded by, by that. I actually dislike greatly, as a reader of books, the, what, what we'll call the info dump, where you become uh, overwhelmed by the sensation that the author is showing off how much work they did in researching and preparing this book. They're giving you information that's more about them than about the story of the characters. So as far as I'm concerned, the scholarship needs to be as comprehensively masked and hidden within the book as it possibly can be. Um,
2: so for me, the footnotes are, you know, in some sense, a way of having fun. It's an extra voice. And the book is in large part about telling stories and recreating and taking apart the odyssey in different ways, so it seems appropriate to have this other voice floating over the text. Um, more humanely, I guess it's a way of not sending the reader off to Wikipedia quite <laughs> as often as they might go otherwise. Um, and you know, it's it's uh, it's a lot of fun, actually, being able uh, to speak in this authoritative voice uh, and tell lies and, and so yeah. on. <laughs> People believe anything you put in a footnote, it's amazing. <laughs>
0: Well, you know, obviously in, in both these books, storytelling and stories are a really important part uh, of, the, of the book itself, the stories, because um, there's this idea. I think both of you guys play with this idea in very different ways, and I, I love this idea of the path not taken, the branch uh, to, to look at the same event. If it had happened this way or from this different person's perspective, you give us the same events from different perspectives. And you give us kind of different versions of what could have happened upon Odysseus's arrival home. We have a, a variety of them in there. A- and in your book, you're, you're, you talk a- a quite entertainingly about the difference between what the historians write and between what it was like to actually have lived through these events. A- it's this, I think, uh, a distillation of what the quantum physicists called the many worlds theory that every time we make a decision that there's a new world created that where things went this way and things went that way.
1: The past and history are in no possible way uh, set or fixed for us. Uh, Historians or we in any culture look back at events in, in in a manner that's very much a reflection of our contemporary values and views. uh, The obvious example here would be that at one point, say in the 1950s, uh, historians in America writing about or teaching uh, Columbus's arrival on these shores would have had a view that would be dramatically different from the standard teaching of that story today. And so history is, uh, I have a line in Under Heaven where I suggest that time runs both ways. We make stories of our lives. Because each generation, each culture will construct its version of the past. And in Under Heaven, one of the things that caught me in, in my reading in the period, the eighth century of China, was how differently those events were seen 100 years later, 300 years later, 600 years later today. That the past is a very fluid, flexible, evolving uh, condition. And I wanted to work that into the story, so the motif that Rick is mentioning it, that there are moments in the novel where we get later historians and their views on the events that we are living through with the characters. And that's central, in fact, to what I wanted to do, one of the things I wanted to do with this novel. Hmm. And you, you give us some
0: different versions of the same events a, and play with things from different percep- perspectives in kind of this uh, um, metafictional way, I think. So to
2: some extent, it's a sort of Ulipan thing. Uh, so Ulipo was this European literary society dedicated to the intersection of mathematics and literature. So basically it's stories with mathematical skeletons or structures. So that was kind of one of the genesis of the book, but um, it sort of took on a life of its own. I find it difficult to explain really, but it works for me. It's as though um, there's something there that's interesting and compelling but in one story you can't get all or even very much of it, so you have to keep approaching it from different angles and filling in more and more that way. And
0: Well, we hear that, the piece you read, Blindness, mm-hmm. um, we hear that from uh, a different perspective earlier on in the book, don't we? Um, There's nobody, nobody, it's kind of the same name, nobody kind of truncated in a funny way.
2: Oh, right. Um, so uh, the same events do keep showing up in different versions and different stories. So uh Um, Odysseus and his men went to the Cyclops' island. They mutilated the Cyclops and escaped. Um, When Odysseus was sailing away, uh, he, or or rather, when he was a guest in the Cyclops' cave, he said his name was Nobody. So that later, the Cyclops said, it was Nobody who did this to me. And his friend said, oh, well, all right then. See ya. Um, So so that trope gets uh, trotted out a lot in the book.
0: Well, um, I think that this also gets to the idea of, you know, the reader's experience, too, that as we're reading this as readers, um, we somewhat become characters. When you use these kind of, discuss these, when Guy discusses the histories and when you give us these different uh, perspectives, all of a sudden we realize that, you know, the actual reading part of a novel is a big part of making that novel work. That, that you know, you're employing us. as I, I think I told Zach later, you know, you guys write the script. We were the directors of, of the movies. And so you know, I got to direct this movie in my own tiny little brain.
1: Who are you cast?
0: <laughs> I, you know, I don't really see the, the faces so much. It's just the, the, the feel. And it's, that's one of the things that, that interests me when you guys uh, do these things that make us kind of think about uh, that, the fact that we are actually reading them.
2: Um, Apropos uh, casting the movie of a book in your mind uh, saying that a character has high cheekbones and a long nose or whatever has never really done much for me but I really love what William Gibson does Uh, he says for instance his character is like an ethnic Johnny Depp or in some other way related to a well known media figure and that really casts it effectively for me
1: You know, going back to your first remark about the reader the director of the movie uh, i argued and taken the view for for a really long time, that it's a mistake to think of a novel as a monologue delivered from the author to you, that you are simply listening to the author, because it's a dialogue. And the reader brings so much that can vary from person to person and within a person. We've all had the experience when we picked up a book and it hasn't worked for us and we pick up the same book six months or three years later, and it's brilliant. Mm -hmm. Or the flip side, we read a book and love it, and then read it again 15 years later, and we wonder what we saw in that book. What was I thinking? Yes, exactly, exactly. And that happens in relationships too sometimes, Rick. (laughs) (laughs) And it's so much, that underscores for me the degree to which uh, it's a shared experience that one person's erotic scene is another person's pornography and it's another person's useful way to fall asleep. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <You> know, <it's laughs> so in my other life, uh, I'm an artificial intelligence researcher, so I have a um, sort of direct experience of how underspecified language is. That, that is the tremendous amount of information you have to bring to bear to understand even the simplest sentence, much less story.
0: Oh, interesting. Uh, now, um, tell me, do you, you know, I guess, because are, are you a programmer? Um, not exactly. A uh, computer scientist,
2: actually, so um, more trying to think deep thoughts. <laughs> and okay, because
0: like. I'm, I'm curious about, you know, the relationship between, you know, creating computer programs or, you know, creating, I guess, whatever you do to, to writing this. Are they, do you find that one leaks into the other?
2: Um, I think that the relationship between them is pretty tenuous, so they're both pattern languages, uh, and in some essential way, the same thing, but, uh, the thing about math and computer programs and, like, they're extraordinarily simple patterns compared to books and language, um, it, with a computer program, uh, it's not that much information, but I think that if you were to take any paragraph from any book and expand all of the information in it, it would be vast, um, and and that's the primary difference.
0: Now, one thing these books both share is they both uh, spend a lot of time talking about a pastime that seems to never never get old, which is war, and I you both draw, I think, am I wrong? Sun Tzu, Art of War? Yeah. I think you both draw on it. So talk about, uh, and one of the things that's interesting too is that you both talk about ha- what happens when warriors have to live in a time of peace which is not easy for anybody involved around them.
1: Um, there's a lot of ways to, to uh, respond to that when it's one of those really big questions. I think that uh, in Under Heaven, one of the starting points for me was a quite brilliant, uh, world-class piece of poetry by the greatest of the Tong Dynasty poets, a man named Dufu. And it's a poem called The Ballad of the War Wagons, or War Cards, depending on the translation. And it's remarkable because it's a poem about the poet, a poet figure, encountering a group of farmers and peasants marching off to war at a distant frontier. And it is uniquely, for that time, sympathetic to the plight, to the suffering of the ordinary people. And in the eighth century, that was not only just about unheard of, it was also dangerous. Because to be sympathetic to the soldiers carries with it the implication that the emperor and his advisors were making a mistake in how they treated and how they handled their military men. And the emperor could not make mistakes. And that perspective On war and the fate of the ordinary man was one of the things that led me into my opening of the novel because that particular poem ends with one of the soldiers saying have you not heard of the battlefield by that mountain lake where so many bones of so many unburied soldiers lie with their ghosts wailing under the moon and under the sky. And that was an entry point for me. If you're asking about war and the story, it was absolutely there for me at the starting point of Under Heaven. Um, let's
2: see. Uh, soldiers in the End of War. Uh, I read somewhere that the nearest modern equivalents to the Homeric heroes are not military men, but uh, famous professional athletes. So um, they're physically extremely powerful and they're famous and they're wealthy and they're also, in many cases, spoiled children uh, who are absolutely <laughs> used to getting their own way. So in the end of the Trojan War for the Greeks who were lucky enough to survive might be kind of like the retirement of uh, a famous basketball player. Uh, it can't <laughs> be a very pretty thing.
1: <laughs> you know, there's a uh, There's a myth, myth really, that goes back to the days when the Iliad and the Odyssey were first being uh, sat down in writing. And the myth is that Helen was never a Troy, that Helen of Troy did not exist, that she was a phantom, a ghost, a construct of the gods, and Helen, in fact, had been taken off to Egypt, of all places. And therefore, all of that long, train of death and violence and destruction and glory and horror was for a phantom. That there was no Helen at Troy for the Greeks to regain. And that would be a commonality, that idea of the ghost underlying the backstory. That war was taking place for no purpose. She wasn't even there. It's a uh, I find it one of the most powerful and disturbing myths to emerge from the whole tradition of the Iliad and the Odyssey. I,
2: I've i read that, and I've always liked that, too. I believe she was made out of cloud. It, I kind of like to think about Menelaus kicking down the door, and there she is, and he embraces her, and she dissolves into a few wisps of fog. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, you know, Guy, one of the things about your book is it, that's interesting is that we, we... And I think both these books... Um, there are some things that just never change and never get old. We think we've invented the insurrection war and we're the first people to ever have to deal with this, but you have a scene and that that's where your book starts out with something the you know that how tagura, the uh, logical equivalent of the Tibetans I now under given to understand uh, was something like uh you know the Afghanistan for ancient China
1: We live in one of the most ahistorical times and cultures I think that's ever been. Uh, Even educated people don't know much about even recent, let alone distant history. And I do believe, I do believe that ignorance of the past creates traps and pitfalls, chasms in front of us going forward. So if I've got an underlying uh, personal drive that's kept me exploring this for 20 years now, it is that. It's the idea that there are themes and motifs and elements of, of history that are important for us to be more aware of than we tend to be. And your observation, Rick, would be right on that, that aspect of what keeps me going as a writer?
0: Uh, Zachary, you know, one of the things that your book talks about, uh, mentions, and I think that's an interesting aspect of war, is w- war is kind of monotonous. Um, yeah, every
2: uh, soldier's memoir I've read uh, speaks at length to the boredom, boredom, years of boredom punctuated by moments of extreme terror. <laughs> I assume this is a historical constant.
0: <laughs> yeah. Now, um uh, you guys both also do very well with the supernatural. and in fact, and this is a, a, both these books are, are, to a certain extent, in a way about that you know, the gods like to meddle with our lives, and, and they're not much better at them than we are. <laughs> <laughs> Zachary, I think that's a little more uh, present in your book. So talk about uh, you know, these, these gods who are as immature as we are. Um, certainly
2: omni-benevolence was not a characteristic of the Greek gods. Um, uh, omni-drunkenness. Om, omni, uh, omni-amorousness. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think it's in Homer somewhere that uh, the gods incite men to war to amuse themselves, more or less. This isn't in my book so much. Uh, I mean, the gods fall in love with humans, and... Um, and keep the war going.
1: I think I'm doing something tangential to that. It's, it's not so much an issue of the gods of mythology in Manga of several novels. I've been interested in trying to avoid an aspect of historical fiction that I've become more and more aware of, and that's the patronizing, smug sense of superiority we have today when we encounter beliefs of the past. The sort of thing we'd say, can you believe that in the Middle Ages they thought that if the three was suspected, witch in the river, if she drowned, she was innocent, and if she floated, she was guilty, and so you burned her. You know, can you believe they thought that way? And we're constantly feeling this uh, superiority when we encounter the way our ancestors saw the world. And it occurred to me a number of years ago that it might be very powerful and it might be very effective for the reader if I constructed the setting of my novels to be the way the characters in that book thought it was. So if in 8th century China, people believed that if you did not properly respect your ancestors or the dead bury them properly with appropriate rights, their ghosts would not have rest. This was what they thought of the world, how they lived in the world. And it struck me that it would be very effective, and I've done this for several novels now, to let the setting of the books be an accurate depiction of how the people thought it was, and that gets rid of that feeling of superiority. And you can't walk around saying, oh my gosh, they believed there were ghosts hovering over the battlefield, when there are ghosts hovering (laughs) over the (laughs) battlefield. (laughs) We're not going to feel as superior about that. And I think it's important. I think it's important to get us closer to the way people saw the world in the past if the book presents it as such. We get closer to their world view. So
2: for most of the Lost Books, uh, I, the Greek ancient Greek worldview is correct, but there's one chapter where uh, it's not, where Odysseus is an atheist and a sort of con man uh, <laughs> who um, fakes epilepsy in an attempt not to go to the Trojan War. Uh, He's heard that people often have religious epiphanies, so he says Athena talks to him when he has these fits, and that's where the whole business comes from. So uh, Athena and his close personal relationship with her is a sort of long con perpetrated on his credulous uh, colleagues.
0: Well, I, I like this idea of uh, the the world is um, you know perceived by the characters because clearly you know people hundred years from now go oh I can't believe those 21st century people they, they believe they believe any old damn thing about global warming or whatever. Will we'll seem as ridiculously uh, quaint as the Victorians might seem to us now, and I think that's exactly one of, right. And I that's, agree with that. Uh, I agree
1: with that. That's exactly the point.
0: And that's one of the fun things about this book is to kind of see, we, we get to immersed when you're immersed in the perception of another culture to the degree that you immerse immerse both these authors immerse us in. We get. The, uh, uh, it gives us a perspective on our own beliefs I think, and I think that's deliberate and entertaining too it's fun uh, now one thing that, that both these novels also have just out and out supernatural stuff and, and one thing yeah, you guys are both interested in wolves I mean wolves play a big part in your novel and they're not a small part in yours you, you have the most uh, unique kind of uh, vision of the werewolf I've ever read where did you... Did you... Is that something that came out of your own tiny brain? Um, there are a few werewolves, actually. Um, which one were you thinking of? Well, there's the guy who cuts himself and, and the fur kind of grows.
2: Oh, right. Um, I, th- I think that's uh, derived from something I read in a William Vollman novel. Oh. Uh, oh, and so there's another chapter that um, has, a, has werewolves in it, uh, but it's not really clear unless you read it carefully. Now, Uh, which chapter is that? Oh, what's it called? Um, uh, I can't remember what my chapters are called.
0: Um, It seemed to me there were two. Oh, A Night in the Woods. Okay, well tell us about creating A Night in the Woods and why why that kind of uh, aspect of the fantastic and the supernatural interests you. Well, Um, so I thought it was kind of fun
2: that on some level it's a werewolf story and on another level it's about compromise and a marriage Insofar so far as uh, Odysseus as a young man is extremely preoccupied with um, his posterity so he wants the best son he can get so he goes off and finds this wife from this obscure but well respected family off in the mountains and they have a son um, by and by he goes off to the war he comes back 20 years later um, he goes and finds uh Penelope, surrounded by her lovers, uh, in in his hall, um, he subtly lets her know that it's him. Goes away for the night, comes back, and they've all disappeared mysteriously, uh, because she's killed them. But um, <laughs> yeah. they don't acknowledge that fact, and she doesn't ask him about his lovers on his way back. And then
0: they get back to their uh, happily married state. Uh, this is the venomous p- p- Penelope, right? I, think mm. I don't remember that she's you you have a lot of fun with the uh, the other characters, not just Odysseus in in, in this novel. Um, when you were putting these pieces together did you kind of chart what you did or did you just uh, enter a fugue state for everyone and, and say, now I am you are there. Um, I, I certainly
2: didn't do anything like make a chart. Uh, I was just looking for things that worked. Mm-hmm. Um, I it was really hard to find things that worked but i always felt like i could recognize it when it did so my goal was kind of to um, find things that didn't feel like i'd written them like they were just sitting there in the fabric of the story and took a little push to come into existence
0: now now guy i think the way i w- the way i would describe the way you deal with these kind of events that are somewhat supernatural is you really evoke uh, what freud called the uncanny um, and, and you're very subtle about it and, and it it, it works really well. Talk about uh, the feeling of
1: your characters of, of wolves. Is that something that's based out of your research? The relation, We can go all night on this. Uh, the relationship between humankind and wolves is endlessly fascinating, endlessly complex and evolving. <coughs> uh, I'll give a plug to a writer who's not here and say that Cormac McCarthy at the end of part one of part His novel, The Crossing, has a long-sustained elegy and lament for the psychological disappearance of the dangerous, powerful, threatening wolf in modern culture to be replaced by the almost vegetarian, misunderstood, (laughs) uh, benign wolf. I understand and they're vegan Yeah, really, <laughs> really really. McCarthy is brilliant on that subject So on the mythic Historical legend level We've been wrestling with The relationship with the wolf For just about forever Frank, I think, it goes back to Homer <laughs> Or beyond In Under Heaven, it's a little more Concrete, you asked about research I've read a quite wonderful novel Meet me on the shelves here in the store Called Wolf Totem which is a Chinese novel translation into English came last year. And it's about uh, a Chinese person, an autobiographical novel uh, sent during Mao's re-education period to live among the nomads of the steppes north of the Great Wall. And he learns about the symbiotic relationship on the steppe between the nomads, the wolves, the grazing animals, the marmots, the grass, and the simultaneous uh, enmity between man and wolf, and the awareness its remarkably ecological, remarkably modern, the awareness that to exterminate the wolf will be to ultimately destroy the ecosystem. They were aware a long way back of the need to keep it in balance. And uh, that triggered all sorts of thoughts about what I could do 1400 years earlier in bringing the idea of the wolf and the steps into into Under Heaven. You know, both of you guys have great uh,
0: landscapes too. Uh, you create this kind of arid landscape with your language and and I think that's... It, it's a really powerful part of, the, of this reading this book, is really just the sparseness of your words and, and sometimes the density. It's not just this arid desert kind of Greece, right? but um, so talk about using language to create this kind of uh, a landscape that is very um, concentrated and full. You you really once we enter the lost books of the the Odyssey, we feel we're in really one very specific kind of place for the whole book. Hmm. Um, so as far as language goes and
2: aridity, um, I did try to be as minimal as possible. Um, uh, most things I read, I want to tighten them. So uh, with my own work, it's tightened about as far as it's going to go. And as far as landscape, I guess I had a particular grease in mind uh, which turns out to have nothing to do with the actual uh, Mediterranean. Uh, <laughs> uh, I th- for the second edition, I thought about putting in a footnote saying that the climate change has resulted in contemporary Greece being considerably more temperate than it was uh, during the Homeric epic, which may be true for all I know. But.
1: It's part of the job, Rick. It's part of the job description. Is that if you're going to uh, aim for that immersion you mentioned, then sight, sound, smell, taste, all of these aspects are going to be a part of how you try to draw the reader in, into the into the setting, uh, and try to visualize uh, where a scene takes place, trying to make it uh, intense for someone reading it, it's it's just part of the basic sort of uh, task that that a novelist will set him or herself in in trying to draw the reader in. Well, um, you also
0: both talk about um, the power of women in political situations, and that's a big part of the theme in your book, isn't it? And it's very interesting the way that you draw this out, and and it kind of come it emerges in your book. It's not there from the very get-go, it kind of grows out.
1: I've always been interested in this, and it's not political in my case. I'm not trying to make a formal sexual politics statement. I'm working at something much more basic, which is that uh, I've always said that a good book is interesting things happening to interesting people, and ideally written in an interesting way. I mean, it's, it's as simple as that, but as difficult as that. And if you could find ways to make uh, as many characters as possible interesting to the reader, then you've achieved something useful. In the sorts of cultures that I've been writing about, access to power for women was extremely limited. Access even to control over their own lives might have been extremely limited. One of the ways in Under Heaven that I tried to focus on how women might operate to gain some of that control was to shift all the scenes written from a woman's point of view into the present tense. Because the present tense is inherently immediate. It's the be here now. It's the focus on and observe this moment right now. And all of the scenes told from a woman's point of view are done that way because women needed to. You could argue they still need to in many parts of society. Women needed to be hyper-attuned to what was developing in a given situation. Um, Let's see, women. Um, So.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's unfair when
1: Rick just looks across (laughs) expectantly
2: in large part the Odyssey seems to be about the relationships between Odysseus and his women there's this sort of well fairly remote relationship with Helen and then there, uh, there's Circe and Calypso mm-hmm. um, who the women with who half gods on the islands where he gets trapped there's even Scylla uh, who's a fairly horrible thing but still female and there's Athena his patroness and finally there's Penelope um and so, really, all of his strong relationships—so with women—I guess Telemachus oh. and his father are the exceptions, but um, uh, those bonds don't seem as tight, really.
0: Now, I, do does anybody in the audience have any any questions or or comments, or something they'd like to ask or or talk about? No, what? Don't worry. There's wait, but wait, there's more. Okay. <laughs> uh, you guys. Um, have a very different sense of plotting. This is one thing where these books are, are very, very different. And, and so, Guy, uh, your book has a, a kind of a feel of a classical symphony where it's themes, sub-themes build to this enormous uh, um, conclusion and then there's a nice kind of a coda. And, you know, you have a nice coda, too. I forgot about that. That's, I didn't think about that. You have a beautiful coda, The Last Island. Uh, So, Guy, how much of your plot comes out as you just write? I mean, do you just start at A and go to Z and say, okay, hey, that's it?
1: I never outline. Mm -hmm. I never outlined a book. Uh, I say that, and I have to be careful when I'm talking to groups of younger writers. Uh, Increasingly and depressingly these days, most writers are younger writers. (laughs) Uh, The... uh, the fact that I don't doubt to be that I'm suggesting that other people should do it that way. I have good friends who outline everything A to Z as you suggested before they write chapter one. Uh, for me, the Graham Greene, the British novelist, once said that he never outlined because if he knew exactly where the book was going, he got bored writing it. Mm-hmm. And that's very much my own point of view on this. It has to be a journey of discovery which is a cliché, but it pretty much covers what's going on. It that I am discovering, en route, the intricacies of where these characters of this story want to go. There will be way stations, milestones, that I know I'm going to be going past, but I won't necessarily know how the story is, is getting there. So that's one of the things that makes it so damnably stressful getting up in the morning, and looking at the computer screen because I don't necessarily know where that day's plot is taking me. The exercise is to discover it, sometimes feel like a surfer on a wave that's a little too big for my skill set.
0: Now, your book is, is a series of kind of uh, uh, vignettes, sort of, but it's also a novel in that we have a, we read this and, and have a full message. I mean, did you write these in the order we read them, or? Oh, definitely not. Okay. In fact, like, I don't even really know what order I wrote them in anymore. <laughs> uh, it's lost to history. Uh, so, uh, talk about uh, creating, I mean, each little bit, because you have an interesting sense of the story in here. I mean, that you each uh, piece ha- is a different kind of story. Some of them are adventure stories, some of them are kind of just surreal uh, pieces. Uh, how do you know when you're when you've come when you've finished a piece? Um, hmm. uh, I guess I know I've finished when I've taken
2: away everything I can take away without it collapsing. Oh, oh. Uh, so
0: you're, you're, these are all much
2: longer when they start out. Um, yeah, losing weight tends to be how things go in the editing process, um, and. So most of the chapters are story-shaped, and some of them are more like, I don't know what, a prose poem, whatever that is, which is, at any rate, a piece of prose without too much plot that hopefully sounds nice. Um, uh, I I kind of like a balance between the two.
0: When, yeah? No, 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 go. go that, Let's hear from the audience. Tell ta-
1: Tigana had a whole bunch of different uh, notes as a starting point, but the one that was central for me was, again, we're talking about lessons of history. It was the recurring motif that I found in reading in so many different parts of the world at so many different times of how tyrants diminished or erased The ability of occupied people to resist them by taking away their history, their self-identity, their language has been fundamental in so many parts of the world at so many different times. If you take away people's language, their art, their sense of self-awareness, you make it significantly easier to control and dominate them. So that was the starting point specifically for that aspect of the book. I wanted to make in that book, I set myself the the challenge of using the idea of magic to take away a name as a symbol, as a metaphor Mm -hmm. for what tyranny has done. I could rattle off a dozen instances of where and when this has been done, not magically, but by erasing the access to your own language, we did that to the Native Americans. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We wouldn't let them speak, speak their language. Yeah. But when I do, this is actually touches me greatly. When I do book tours around the world, one of the first questions that comes up when when the event goes to the floor, whether I'm in, in Croatia or Poland or Mexico, uh, in Quebec, in Canada, somebody will stand up and say, when you wrote to Ghana, were you writing about us? Mm. And the answer is always, uh, yes, I was, because that's why it was done as a fantasy. For me, this was, in I did this one in 1990, this was to some degree a revelation, a shifting of ground of what I thought fantasy literature was capable of doing. It was capable of being used to write fiction that would universalize the themes that the author, or that I wanted to work with and make them, for readers around the world, feel self-applicable. Thank you, uh, Zachary,
0: um, this brings to mind um, the one of the things I think that your book does that's really interesting is that as we read each of these, these pieces, um, it, we, it takes us a while sometimes to figure out who is telling the story and maybe why they're telling the story. And I think you're, that you're getting in doing that. You're getting us to, I mean, for example, the, the Cyclops. I mean, uh, we know for sure, absolutely, it's a Cyclops in the very last line when he says his one eye. And, and I think that's a really, to, to get into those kind of perceptions, is it's similar to what, you know, Guy was saying, that, that it gets us, um, speaks to the way that um, we tend to not understand what's going on around us in a way. Um,
2: certainly it's kind of a fun, a fun plot device, the narrator identity reveal. Mm-hmm. Um, with that story... Uh, Well, so Homer was blind, of course, and the Cyclops is blinded. And uh, I found myself thinking what the Cyclops' life would have been like after he was blinded. There's probably not too much to do except sit around in the dark and think about how much he hates (laughs) this guy who called himself Nobody. And so it's not much of a step from there to impotent revenge fantasies about Nobody. And then, well, you can't really kill him off. You just you keep him alive on some pretext or other, and you really want to hurt him as much as you can. So there's something he really wants that he can't have, and and then the cyclops ends up becoming Homer, uh,
0: or the coyote, or th- uh, wily coyote. <laughs> 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 to a certain extent, um, you know, it it uh, one of the things that, that I like about the the way um, that you that you create these stories, is that uh, as we go from one to the other, we're put into different voices. You know, you write first person, third person, heroic prose, kind of real commonplace, sometimes you just give us this like, uh, it almost sounds like an almost modern voice. Could you talk about making the decision, applying different voices and different tenses and different persons to each kind of uh, vision that you have?
2: Um. They feel different, and it's interesting to come at the same material from different perspectives. So in some cases, the gods are real, and in other cases, they're uh, a scam. In some cases, Odysseus is heroic, and in others, he is a coward looking for the main chance. Um, uh, I think it's kind of interesting to uh, have implied instability, where you don't really know how what's true among all these possible variations.
0: That's, that's one of the things I think is totally uh, – both of you guys do this all, a lot. I mean, we're, as we're reading Under Heaven, we're in the Kitai Empire, but we can't help but know, because you tell us right here, dazzling Tang dynasty of 8th century China, that it's, that's what it's based on, what it's about. And, and with, your, with your book, um, we're reading – these bits of the odyssey, but we don't, you know, and you're throwing names at us and allusions at us. I, I think that if you did a, a HTML version of this book, practically every other word would be some kind of link to the, a Wikipedia um, entry. So uh, could you guys talk about uh, writing, staying tightly within your own created worlds, but yet knowing that both you and the reader are are aware of this other big thing that's really, really out there. Who wants to go first? Uh, Go ahead. Oh, uh,
2: let's see. (laughs) So um, one of my hopes with the book was that although uh, a knowledge of Homer would be helpful, it wouldn't, it's not necessary to be a classicist. Having skimmed the Wikipedia entries for the Odyssey and the Iliad would suffice. And as far as um, a big underlying thing being out there, one of the things that was fun uh, for me about the book was that there are a lot of patterns in it, that is sort of structures that link up different stories, but none of them uh, apply to the entire book. So as soon as you start to find a shape that accurately characterizes what you've been reading, uh, it fails and something else forms. So you never know quite where you are. and. Um, maybe that's how art works generally. If there's no pattern it's just chaos and entropy and boring and if the pattern is too strong then it's boring and banal Um, and it's the edge case that's interesting
1: Well as I I think I said in the far far distant past at the beginning of this interview (laughs) (laughs) the uh one of the strengths of shifting to the fantastic for me, from a straightforward treatment of history, is that it focuses our shared awareness, by which I mean the author and the reader, that when we write about and think about the past, we're, we're guessing. We're engaging in speculation, as informed as we can make it, but there is this space between what we can know about Henry VIII in bed with Anne Boleyn that for me that slight quarter turn as one reviewer described what I do the slight quarter turn to the fantastic reflects that shared awareness so I'm very comfortable with the reader Knowing, in fact, as you say, I'm up front with it, knowing what the inspiration and the the period of trying to evoke. But I'm equally comfortable with our joint sense that this is not going to be anything remotely exact. The fantasy prism, I think, works for both of us in that way.
0: And and I think that the the fantasy prism of this conversation... (laughs) it's about time for us to let the Capitola book cafe uh people clean up and i want to thank them for for hosting us and i hope that um the people here now we're going to be doing i'm going to be doing a couple more events in the next coming months in two weeks i'm going to have carlos ruiz zafon here he's the author of shadow of the wind and if you if you haven't read this book, it's one of the most recommendable books that you can read to buy for anybody. It's just superb. And he's a very entertaining man. It's set in 1945 in Barcelona, and it's about the Cemetery of Forgotten Books and a boy who gets a gift from that from that Cemetery of Forgotten Books that follows him around for the rest of his life. It's a wonderful book, and I highly recommend it. And it's a sequel, or sort of sequel, it's called The Angel... Uh, the Angels game, which is uh, looks at the same events from a slightly different perspective or similar events, it's set in the same time. And then coming up in June, on June twenty sixth, we're going to take something, do something very different. I'm going to have Molly Katzen, who's author of the Moosewood Cookbook, and Anna Thomas, who's the author of Love Soup. We're going to talk about cooking and creativity and writing cookbooks. It, it's really fun. Molly Katzen is a great gal, and I hope everybody will come here. Um, you can hear my show, and you'll hear listen to 6 to 7 on Sundays, or you can go to KUSP and get the podcast. You can go to my website, bookotron.com, slash agony, and get the podcast, where we'll have be podcasting what we heard tonight and much more. So um, thank you for joining me, and I hope you'll all come back in a couple weeks and hear Carlos release a phone talk. Thanks for coming tonight. I really appreciate it.